Welcome, First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gatherings. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor, Nathaniel, with this week's message. I asked Julie to marry me on a Sunday morning in Texas. We were both leading worship. We were on the same worship team. And I had chosen to end the service with a song by Hillsongs, which is now an old song, but it was called, I Will Never Be the Same Again. So we sang that at the very end of the service. And then I just said to the congregation, I said, sisters and brothers, um, this song is important to me because I never will be the same again, because I'd like to ask Julie Heckman if she would be my wife. And she did say yes, she's encouraging. But in singing that song, I will never be the same again, I thought I knew how marriage would affect me. I thought I understood how it would change me, how God would use my wife to mold me more and more into his image. But looking back, (laughs) I had no idea of the depth of the goodness of God that I would experience by being joined as one flesh with Julie. I thought I knew. But that day, 15th of July in 2000, the day we were married, that day changed everything for us. Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come to them. But they had no idea how profoundly the Holy Spirit's coming would change everything. They anticipated it, they looked forward to it, they prayed for it. But the arrival of the Holy Spirit would transform them, it would change history, and it would alter the world. Over the last couple weeks, we've seen the transition. As Jesus ascends into heaven, and right before that, he prepares his disciples. He starts transitioning them from his presence bodily with them to what they are going to experience with God present to them in his spirit. And then last week, we looked at that preparatory period, the preparation between when Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came, and how the, the, the Christian community, small though it was, how they prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And today, through the mind and pen of Luke, we will note the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters the realm of time and space of this world. He enters the very souls and bodies of those who believe in Jesus. And he launches this new entity, a new community, a new organism that we know today as the church. And this morning, we'll answer three questions about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Very simple questions. When, how, and why? If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible and you would like to borrow one to follow along this morning, the ushers are coming back down the aisles now with some copies. If you just raise your hand, they'll be glad to give you one. If you do not own a hard copy, please receive this as a gift from us. You can take it and keep it. And please read it and make it your own. I'll be reading from the second chapter 
of Acts. The book of Acts follows the four Gospels, comes right after the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible as a book, the easiest way to find it would be to look in the table of contents, find the page number where it starts, turn one page over, and you'll come to chapter 2. I'll be reading the first 13 verses of this chapter. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, eh, they've had too much wine. The short answer to the question, when did the Holy Spirit come, is during the Feast of Pentecost. This feast had been observed in Israel for generations before that day. In the law that God gave his people at Sinai, he ordained that they would celebrate this feast, the Feast of Pentecost, as a feast of gratitude and celebration of the first fruits of the grain harvest. It was celebrated on the 50th day, that's where the Penta part of Pentecost comes from, the 50th day counting from the first Sunday after the Passover. But there was another aspect to the Pentecost feast and that it was the celebration of law-giving. Hebrew tradition stated that Moses received the law at Mount Sinai 50 days after the Passover when all of the the Israelites at the time left Egypt when they had the exodus. So we have a dual celebration of the first fruits of harvest combined with the celebration of the receiving of God's law. On the one hand, the grain which nourishes the physical body, and on the other hand, the law of God which nourishes the soul. There's a parallel here with what we celebrate today as communion. The physical elements that nourish our bodies, but the life of Christ that nourishes our souls. And it's on this day that the Holy Spirit comes. There's something special and unique about the Holy Spirit arriving at the Feast of Pentecost. My nephew, Samuel, was born on July 23rd. Now, to most of the world, there's nothing particularly special about that but that's my birthday too. And his arrival on that day means that it was extra special to me. So I call Samuel my birthday buddy. 
There's an extra special prophetic significance to the Holy Spirit arriving at Pentecost. He is a testament to the new covenant, the fact that the Old Testament law has been entirely fulfilled in Jesus, and a celebration of the impending harvest of souls for the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit will indwell the body and soul of believers, and He will nourish their souls with the Word and presence of God. Now, in addition to the theological strategic nature of the Holy Spirit arriving at Pentecost, there was also a logistical strategy that we shouldn't miss. The world had come to Jerusalem for this feast. More people actually made the journey to Jerusalem for Pentecost than they did for Passover because those ensuing 50 days actually made the weather more conducive to travel. Now, you all heard me read the list of nations and regions represented. I'm not going to read it again, but Luke's making a point. In his sovereignty, God sends his spirit at the most strategic time possible when the most people would be exposed to his gospel and then have those same people return to their homes and take this news back to their places of origin. The Holy Spirit came at a strategic time both theologically but also logistically. And we move on and we ask the question, how did the Holy Spirit come? And the text shows us that He came with three signs, each with significant meaning. The first sign that accompanied the Holy Spirit is the audible sign of wind. In Hebrew, the word for wind and breath and spirit is all the same word, ruach. Wind is often throughout Scripture a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, it calls to mind the prophecy of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. I know many of you may have heard songs that celebrate that vision that Ezekiel had. Some of you might be entirely unfamiliar with it, but it's worth rereading because I want you to note how often in this account the word breath, wind, and spirit is mentioned. Ezekiel 37, beginning with verse 1, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. But 
There was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life, stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The wind of the Holy Spirit of God comes to these dead, dry bones as the breath of new life. Where people's souls are dry, dead bones, the Holy Spirit breathes into them new life. The Holy Spirit ministers to believers the breath, the wind of new life of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second sign is the visible sign of fire. Fire is a symbol of the holy presence of God. Recall Moses in the wilderness tending his sheep, and he sees, what, a bush that's on fire but never burns up. And as he approaches that, he's told by God, Moses, take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. Why? Because God is there. Remember, when Moses then receives the law at Mount Sinai, that moment is accompanied with fire and smoke. The New Testament affirms that our God is a consuming fire. The fire is the sign of God's holiness, His holy presence. And as such, the Lord, God Almighty, the Father, is saying through this visible sign to the people, the Holy Spirit is God. Note what Luke wrote in his gospel. Early in his gospel, in chapter 3, verse 15 to 16, I know that many of you are familiar with these verses. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John, this is John the Baptist, might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with what? with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now here we see God baptizing his nascent church in the Holy Spirit and fire, exactly as John the Baptist foretold. The holy presence of God, not only with, but in his church. The third and final sign accompanying the rival of the Holy Spirit was the miracle of language and understanding, often called tongues. Now, whether this was a miracle of speaking or of understanding or both, the point is that the Holy Spirit made it possible for everyone present to hear the disciples speaking in their own language. 
Now, there's a side note here, and there is disagreement on this. I, I want to be clear, uh, so uh, I'm not going to die on this hill. But my understanding is that this occurrence is not the same as the gift of tongues that Paul teaches about in his letters to the Corinthians, okay? The gift of tongues is also a manifestation of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But in those occurrences, Paul states that the speaker, the one speaking, does not understand what they're saying when they're speaking in tongues, and neither does anyone else unless they are given an interpretation also by the Holy Spirit. Now, in this case, everyone could understand. And the disciples were speaking in their own language, but they're being heard in all other known languages. And Paul says that the gift of tongues is for believers and the building up of the church, while in this case, the miracle is clearly for the benefit of unbelievers, those who do not know and have not heard. The way the Spirit enables the disciples to communicate with everyone present points to the purpose of universal proclamation that the gospel of Jesus is made accessible in all languages to all people. It's not intended to be for only a select few. The Spirit proclaims the gospel in a way that it can be understood by all. And if we put these three signs together, we see that God is revealing that the Spirit is holy God, holy with an H, H-O-L-Y, holy God, that he is life, that he is the one who opens human ears and hearts to the truth of Christ and to his gospel. Now, after the last two weeks, the primary purpose, the why of the Spirit's coming should not be a surprise. The Holy Spirit comes upon the new church and immediately inspires bold witness to the truth of Christ and the good news of the gospel. Now, I want to be clear here, too. Empowering witness is not the only function or only work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'm even hesitant to try to explain the Holy Spirit because any attempt to do so will fall short. And so I, I want to be clear that the Holy Spirit's not going to be contained by anything that I do or do not say. And I'm not limiting him. I'm not saying, no, no, Holy Spirit only does this. That's not the point. But what I want us to understand and what I want us to see is this link and chain of events. How Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come, and when he comes, they will be his witnesses. And then in this time of preparation, their focus is keeping that calling, that purpose of witness in the forefront of their minds and their prayers and their pre preparation. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, the first thing he does in the church is impel this witness. So I'm not saying it's the only thing the Holy Spirit does, but it is one of his primary works and primary acts. Again, what's the first thing the Spirit compels the disciples to do? Verse 11, they are proclaiming the wonders of God. Proclaiming the wonders of God. In the verses that follow, you will see, if you read the rest of chapter 2, which we're not going to do this morning, that Peter, the apostle Peter, 
Yes, that same Peter who failed so many times, the Peter who was a terrible swordsman, tried to kill somebody and cut their ear off, the Peter who said, God, tell me to come to you, I'll walk on water, and he goes out on water and he immediately starts to sink when he looks at the wind and the waves. The one who, to whom Jesus had to say, Peter, get behind me, Satan, because the things that you're speaking are not the things of God. That Peter, now absolutely transformed, restored by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, addresses this huge crowd, the crowd that keeps growing. And what does Peter do? He tells them the story of redemption. And at the very end of his sermon, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's pretty good. We're celebrating 121 commitments to Christ over the course of a year. Peter's like, <laughs> no. The very first move of the church, when it, once it is filled with the Spirit, is to proclaim the wonders of God and to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers that witness. Now briefly, two, two aspects of this witness. Remember the roll call of the nations. Remember the strategic moment of this event when Jerusalem is packed with visitors, visitors who will now hear the gospel for the very first time and will take that news back to their homes. And here's the principle. The Holy Spirit empowers witness to all people. And in this, we see a reversal of that Old Testament Genesis account of the Tower of Babel. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that story, but the, the, the population of the earth gathers together. God had told them, actually, to scatter over the earth, and they refused. Instead, they joined together, they built a city, and to celebrate their own independence, to celebrate their own self-sufficiency, they decide they're going to build this huge tower as a symbol of their strength and their might. God sees what they're doing. He says, I'm not going to allow this. Do you know how he prevents it? He confuses their languages. So up, up until that time, actually the text tells us that there was only one language spoken on earth. And all of a sudden, in one second, different languages are born. It's really, really difficult to build something together if you can't communicate. And so that caused the people to scatter. So for the first time, humanity was actually divided by language. What do we see now? as the Holy Spirit comes in power, a reversal of that curse and that division. That confusion, which formerly had separated and divided and scattered humanity, and now by the power of the Spirit, the nations are being reunited in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Language is no longer a barrier. And the second principle on this is that initially it's a witness to all people, but it is a witness from all the disciples. All the disciples were speaking the wonders of God. Not only Peter, not only the twelve, not only the men, all of them. Sisters and brothers, all of us, each and every one, who claims to be a member of God's family, to have been adopted by him, 
who believes in Jesus, who has come to him in repentance of sin and received his forgiveness and his redemption. We are and have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for Jesus. It has nothing to do with role or position within the church. It's not something we can pay somebody else to do for us. It's not something that only people with titles carry out. All the disciples. And why are the people amazed by this? There are a couple different reasons, but the greater crowd is amazed because these people that are doing this are primarily Galileans. And that's their first response. Aren't these people Galileans? That may not mean much to us today, but the Galileans, then they were the hillbillies. They were generally uneducated. They were considered to be crude and ignorant. And yet, this is the source the Spirit chose to first, through whom to first speak witness, to first give this supernatural ability to speak in different languages. Over the course of my uh, life in Brazil, I had many opportunities to observe different Brazilian contractors, building contractors at work. And one thing that almost every contractor had in common was a form of illumination, right? They needed some, somehow a lamp to shine light when they were working in dark places. All of them looked identical, and they were terrifying. They were just a socket for a light bulb with a bare light bulb screwed into it. Wires, two wires, you know, one on either side. You got to finish the contact, connected. And then a length of, you know, that, that extension cord could be however many meters long. And then at the other end of it, the, the wires would part again, and then you'd have two exposed wires wound together. You could use it anywhere there was an outlet. Didn't mind the kind of outlet. And they go in and just shove those two exposed wires into the two contact points of an outlet, and they've got light. It was effective, but it was not beautiful. And when it comes to illumination, this is the point of, of, that, of, of the illustration. The shape doesn't matter. The quality of the lamp or even of the cable doesn't matter. The design and the beauty doesn't matter. What matters is the power flowing through it to the light bulb. And so is this true of all of us, disciples of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers all of us to be witnesses regardless of race or education or appearance or gender, economic status or intelligence, because the power is not ours, but His. And when those two bare exposed wires are, are put into the outlet, the power doesn't say, oh, this is kind of shady. I'm not going through there. The Holy Spirit has already come on His church. The Holy Spirit has already empowered, and many of us don't know it because we've never stepped into what He is empowering. Now, as we tie this together, I have a few closing thoughts I'd like to share. The first of these 
is that this baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon the church here in Acts initially, um, but it continues to come upon each new believer in Jesus. And I know that there are differing perspectives on when and how that happens. There are examples in Acts of specific fillings of the Holy Spirit on certain occasions for specific purposes, but this is the only time in Scripture that the Holy Spirit baptizes all, all known believers in the world at once. What I want to communicate by this is that God has given His Spirit to the church at Pentecost. From that moment on, every soul that repents of sin and trusts in Christ for salvation from sin and destruction is welcomed into the church, into the family of God, and as such receives the indwelling of the Spirit. But just because the witness is intended to go to all people from all disciples does not mean that every disciple will surrender to that call. And of course, it does not mean that everyone who hears will believe. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench the Spirit. Some translations say, do not put out the Spirit's fire. That's actually a pretty remarkable statement because it's implying that as, as individual people, we do have the power to limit the work of the Spirit within us. So we don't have the power to limit the Spirit anywhere else, but we can quench Him and resist Him within ourselves. I don't know if there are any Seinfeld fans out there, but there's a, a Seinfeld episode that's kind of has this, this thread running through it about the three tenors. Remember the three tenors? They used to be famous. Now, maybe they, they sort of are. And the whole joke was that there was, who's the third guy? Who's the third guy? There's Placido Domingo, there's Luciano Pavarotti, and then who, who's the third guy? No one can remember the third guy. And sometimes, sometimes that's the way that the church, that we think of, or rather that we ignore the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like the, the third member of the Trinity that's kind of off, and he's, he's kind of doing his own thing. We don't really understand. We don't really know. We're probably a little afraid of him, so... Um, we just won't talk about him very much. He's just the third guy. And we may want or imagine that we want the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we refuse to submit to him. So in other words, we want his power, but we want it for what we want to do. Or simply we just want that experience. We want some kind of ecstatic experience. And that's what we're longing for. It's not really the call of our souls that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness and longing for the presence of God in us. So we may long for the experience of the filling of the Spirit, but have no intention of doing what the Holy Spirit fills us to do. On the other hand, we see in this passage the hard hearts of those who do see and hear the miraculous presence of the Holy Spirit. They're watching this, and they're witnessing it, but they prefer, for the hardness of heart, and this is where the, the quenching of the Spirit comes in, they prefer to go against logic and believe that these disciples are just drunk, which makes no sense, because since when does being drunk give a person greater linguistic abilities or greater ability to communicate clearly? 
But when the human heart is hard toward God, we will accept illogical arguments if it means that we can avoid surrender and submission to him. So we do have the choice to ignore or suppress the work of the Spirit through us. But let us never do so. Let us be eager and ready to witness in his power. You know, the disciples were mocked on this day. They, people noted they were Galileans. Others said they're just drunk. So we do know that, that when the Holy Spirit came on them, they didn't care about how they were going to be perceived. That, that did not bother, bother them. You know, I can't imagine Peter standing up in front of thousands of people and saying, oh, I don't know about this. You know, may, maybe another day. Maybe another day. I'm not quite ready. I need to, I need to pray some more. Um, these people might lynch me, which could have been a very real possibility. And I imagine that many of us, just in our context, and I put myself in this category too, talking to your neighbor. And there's that, that moment, um, you know, you're, you're connecting over the weeds in your yard or the leaves that blew in, blowing around or just the weather, you know, the really deep things that we talk to our neighbors about. And, there, and there, that thought comes to us in a moment, you know, maybe I should ask them a, a question. Um, maybe start feeling them out about where they might be on, on this spectrum of faith. But like, ah, oh, I don't want to, I think they might think I'm a little weird, or I don't want to offend them. I wouldn't want to offend them with the gospel and the love of Jesus. So we remain silent. A lot of it's because of fear, and I, I understand that. I really do understand that. But when the Holy Spirit came on these disciples, there was no fear. There was no hesitation. There was no worry about perception. There was just the joyful declaring the wonders of God. Unapologetically, without restraint, and with great joy. Our world is in chaos. That's not a secret to any of us. It's broken. People are rebellious, arrogant, hurting, suffering, persecuting, and being persecuted. People are dying and into this world. It's probably really not that different from the world in Christ's day. Into this world, Jesus came into the mess and confusion and hard hearts. And in that context, into those 120 disciples... The Holy Spirit came into the church in this world. God has sent his spirit to empower us to be lights of hope in the darkness. Let's not quench that. Let's not hide his light. May we never put out the spirit's fire burning in and through us because on that Pentecost day so long ago, everything changed. Everything changed. And this morning, as we approach um, the communion table, every, every time that we celebrate communion, as I've said many times, we're, we're reenacting a sign. But one thing that we're reenacting is surrender. 
and submission because we're saying to Christ, this is your body, this is your blood, signs of the new covenant, fill me. I need you. And I don't know where each of you is in your walk with Jesus. I don't know if there are some of you that are truly longing for more. The way that Jesus talks about it is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the reason they're blessed is because they will be filled. If that's what we hunger for, Jesus promises that we'll be filled. If we hunger for other things, there's no guarantee. So as we come to the communion table, I encourage us to come in an attitude of surrender to the power of the Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, even if you are going to send me out into Canton, declaring your wonders at the top of my voice, and as embarrassing and terrifying as I may think that will be, I'm yours. I'm yours. I don't know what the Holy Spirit wants to do in each one of us, but I do know this. He wants us all to be empowered to be witnesses for Jesus in the resurrection. So I'd invite those who are um, serving at the, the communion tables to please come to your respective tables. Let's just take a minute in silence to allow the Holy Spirit to to speak and to invite and to welcome us into that surrender to whatever He might want to do in us. Holy Spirit, God Almighty, please have mercy on your church. Have mercy on us and forgive us for avoiding you, for minimizing you, for limiting you, for having the temerity to say, oh, you don't do this anymore, or you don't act this way, or you don't have that freedom to do this. Lord, Forgive us. And as we come, Lord Jesus, to your table, the one that you instituted, this sign that you enacted for your disciples and that you encouraged us as as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of you. As we do it this morning, may we come with hearts that are truly open, in surrender to your spirit, in whatever you might wish to do in us. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Scripture says that on the evening that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it.
And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup of wine. And this he also passed and offered to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Drink it, each and every one of you. You'll be invited to come forward row by row to the table that is at the head of your seating section. Simply come with an open heart and open hands. Those ministering the bread first and then the wine, they'll just say something to you. You can make eye contact with them. They'll, they'll give you the element. And then you can either eat and drink right there and take it back to your seat. You can come to the altar on either side. You can just step off to the side and receive in your own time. Let's come and receive. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m. and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week.